Welcome to the GovComs podcast, bringing you the latest insights and innovations from experts and thought leaders around the globe in government communication. Now, here is your host, David Pembroke. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of GovComs, the podcast that examines the practice of content communication in government and the public sector. My name's David Pembroke, and thanks for joining me. And thanks for joining me at the GovComs Festival. It was a monster. 24 hours uh, around the world. We had 100 plus hours of content, 170 speakers from 22 countries, five virtual stages, you know, what more could it have produced? It was just an absolute sensation. So thanks to all of you out there in the community who jumped on uh, and got involved. Uh, It was great and it's certainly given us some food for thought as to what we do next. And certainly the announcement of the GovComs Institute is big news. We're still sort of wrestling that one into the ground, but um, certainly it sort of goes to the mission of continuing to help you to be more effective in the work that you do every day. So that's what we'll continue to deliver for you if you keep turning up and listening. One of our guests and one of our featured artists, could dare I call her that, at the uh, GovComs Festival uh, is Amy Arbery, who's currently the Director of Behavioural Analysis at the Australian Department of Agriculture, Water and the Environment. In this role, she leads a team who provide expert advice and analysis to understand, design and implement behavioural change. Her team is made up from people with behavioural science backgrounds and also psychology backgrounds, and they look at the very knotty issues that are tied up in environmental and agriculture policy. But Amy has a wealth of experience in the Australian public sector, and she has been heavily involved in communications, stakeholder engagement, strategic planning, and, and other things throughout her career, where she has previously worked as an assistant director at the Department of Human Services. And in that role, she was instrumental in designing and delivering programs and strategies, such as the Family Violence Strategy, the Child Support Outreach Program, and the Managing the Stakeholder Relationship Officer Network. She's also held roles with the Clean Energy Regulator and the Department of Parliamentary Services. But for the next half hour, she's in the studio. Amy, welcome to GovComs. Thank you, David. Um, Thank you very much, first of all, for uh, participating in the GovComs um, Festival. And I thought it was quite that you were a contributor to a great conversation um, with Zora Artis and uh, another gentleman whose name escapes me. Uh, uh, Tony. Tony Clark. Tony Clark. Yeah. About joining up communi- strategic communications, stakeholder engagement and behavioural science. Now, I haven't as yet because I was busy doing and listening to loads of other things, but maybe a top line summary, if you might give us, of, of that conversation. How do we bring those disciplines together for a capability that delivers for our clients? Yeah, yeah. I mean, spoiler alert we should do that, um, is the conclusion that we came to. Took you half an hour. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Good idea. <laughs> yeah. How many public servants does it take? You know? um, I mean, basically in that conversation we talked about the fact that of all people, you know, comms people, engagement people and behavioural insights people are the ones that should be able to figure out how we can work together, break down the <laughs> silos and really find a way forward. Um, there's... You know, there's really important 
things that you have to consider in making that easier to do, like organisational structure is important. Um, your leadership, super important. Um, but even around that, you know, comms people know how to communicate, how to reach out, as do engagement people. The behavioural scientist types in like the ones in my team know how important it is to make it, you know, as easy as possible to bridge the gap, how to take the perspective of the person you're trying to influence, how to understand what they need to get out of, you know, a particular issue. Uh, and you put all those things together. And I think in the, um, in the discussion with Zora and Tony, I talked a lot about the Avengers uh, because, you know, the three are really important kind of superpowers that, um, are at different stages in their journey and their evolution in government um, but have similar challenges in terms of when we're engaged in the policy cycle, how seriously we're taken by the powers that be and how our outputs are used in the end you know, outcomes and also how we're all used to de-risk, you know, the final outcome as well. And that's not, you know, necessarily taken as seriously as it should be. Mm. Um, so we all face similar challenges in that way. Um, and, you know, the more that we can pull those three things together, the better. I mean, I have, I guess, a particularly unique perspective on it because I've worked in all three. And mm. um, even in my role now, I use comms and engagement all the time. A lot of the advice my team gives is in relation to comms and engagement and drawing in those frameworks as well as ours. So, you know, like I'm wandering around like Tony Stark. <laughs> I'm going to leave that metaphor behind me. But anyway, um, so, so I do have a particular perspective on this that um, maybe not everybody can see. But um, I think, you know, give us a few more years and some deeper thinking about, you know, how do we bridge the gaps and um, break down those silos? And I think, uh, you know, the sky's the limit, basically. Yeah. Yeah. I'm Well, I, it, it's going to be one of the key lines of work that the GovComs Institute starts to look yeah. at, to really to start those conversations, to identify where those barriers are, to do the research, to underpin the research, to mount the case that really the future capability is going to be a combination of comms, stakeholder engagement, technology, data, mm. behavioural science, all wrapped up to deliver for the business areas. Yeah, exactly. You know, to, to solve their problems, to add value, to create insights and really to, to help them to do their job better. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They bring the policy expertise, they bring the subject matter expertise um, and ideally you bring us in the room at the start of the conversation rather than at the end can you wave your magic BI wand and, you yep. know, make this letter do every, everything we want it to do. Yeah. You know, bring us in at the start uh, and we can help you achieve your outcomes much, much more confidently and de-risk some of the stuff that inevitably goes wrong in government policy. Mm. So I can hear the cheers, the hear hears yeah. all <laughs> reverberating <laughs> around the world. But I think that's a good journey for us all to take on. And I think it, that's going to be a great place for us to mature those conversations mm. and to find those frameworks and processes and structures and other things that will enable us. But I think the important thing really for a lot of this stuff is really just a, is a vision, yeah. is, is clarity. And as long as we're all clear and agreed and everyone goes, yep, that sounds about right, it's then just a matter of sort of time before we can 
solve the problem. And as you said before, like we should be able to work this out. Yeah. Anyway, we will. But today I'm really interested in the work that you are doing at the moment in the Department of Agriculture, Water and Environment in the sort of behavioural space. So can you just give us a bit of a view? Where do you live? Um, who is your boss? How many people in your team? Yeah. What's a typical day look like? All that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. So um, my team, as it stands, is um, not a substantial six people. (laughs) Uh, We are small, but we are mighty. Um, And the mix of skills in my team are things like psychology, behavioural sciences, but also human-centred design. We have a really strong design element in our team. Um, We also have some interesting additional skills that I guess I underestimated the value of at the start. So we have someone who has a linguistics background. Um, and initially I thought, oh, radio, that's interesting, whatever. Uh, but as we have gone along, it's become super interesting and super useful in terms of thinking through, you know, how we do what we what do. What does a linguist bring to the table? Oh, he brings a lot of deep thinking about language and how we use language and the history of language and why we would use certain words over other words and why that actually influences things a bit more or less. Um, so, yeah, that's you should just get him in for a chat. It's amazing. We've had anthropologists in our team as well. Um, So a real kind of mix of social science skills, basically. Um, What's super important is getting people who are good at qualitative and quantitative research. Um, But beyond that, uh, the biggest part that makes my team tick is the common principle that we really, really just want to understand what drives the people at the centre of the policies, my department, delivers. Um, How can we make our policies and programs work with them instead of against them? Um, And using our behavioural sciences skills, knowledge, frameworks to do that. A typical day for us, um, so I basically run my team like an internal consultancy. We're a discretionary function. Nobody has to come to us. So fairly early on, we realised that, look, if we're actually going to make it, we have to take a real kind of ser- service, client service mindset, make it, you know, pleasurable to deal with us, make us responsive to the needs of our, you know, clients, so to speak. Yeah. Um, we provide what we talk, what we call light touch advice. So people will come to us with the letter, the brochure, the, you know, often a survey, can you kind of give us a bit of advice to make this thing work a bit better? And in that case, we'll we'll usually talk through a general kind of BI sort of framework, like the EAST framework or something like that, just to help them. Uh, But then we also have uh, what we call major projects. So they're more like where we're doing primary research. Uh, For example, we've done a hell of a lot of work in the waste and recycling space in the last year or two. to really understand, you know, for example, why don't people sort their recycling particularly well? How can we get over that? How can, what interventions can we think about to improve that? Uh, So we'll go out there, we'll actually be boots on the ground doing the research, uh, use those insights to develop some interventions that we can test and evaluate um, and then work with the policy team to take the findings from that and, um, you know, influence the policy thinking that comes out of it. So that's in a nutshell what we do. That's a, that's a, that alone, waste and recycling, what yeah. a massive job. So yeah. take me through that story. How did you, what did you do there? 
Yeah. So uh, a couple of years ago, waste and recycling became quite the issue for the government. Um, uh, People that have been playing along at home would have known a couple of years ago, China changed some rules and meant that we couldn't kind of send all of our stuff stuff offshore. One of the prime, it is in Australia for those overseas, it is one of the prime minister's top priorities. Yeah. For sure. So it's got the attention of the government. So therefore... Yeah, yeah. It was, And it came along at a beautiful time for my team. So my team had sort of been like trying to figure out who are we, what do we do, how do we use our skills? And we'd sort of be doing bits and pieces on the side. But really what you need is something like waste and recycling, yeah. which is... Uh, medium to hot potato. So you don't want the hot, hot potato because <laughs> no one's got time to do a decent piece of research for a hot, hot potato, right? You need the medium. The fire engines and yeah, all that. Yeah. You don't need to be near the fire engines. No, no. So you want the, the warm potato that's still going to be warm like two years down the track, right? So and on top of that, the waste and recycling stuff, a lot of it comes down to human behaviour. Like what are we totally what human we behaviour people to not be doing or to be doing? Yeah. Uh, so we um, uh, basically our deputy secretary at the time kind of identified that it was a great opportunity for us, hooked us up with the policy area. We talked through what was important there. And in a nutshell, it was really about um, how do we improve contamination rates? Um, what do you mean by that? Contamination rates is where people are putting the wrong thing in the wrong bin. Oh, costs, costs industry lots and lots of money, makes yeah. it a lot more difficult to have a really efficient industry. Um, And then the other side of the coin is increasing demand for products made from recycled content because what we want is a really good domestic industry um, making stuff. So early on we actually partnered with ACT government um, uh, just because you know, quite convenient. Um, And they, like a lot of governments around the country, had an issue with people in apartment buildings in particular who are particularly not good at um, sorting their recycling well. Uh, So we partnered with them. They were super keen to take this kind of approach. Um, So we did um, a whole heap of work with them uh, hovering around recycling bins in (laughs) apartment buildings in Canberra, interviewing people about, you know, what works for you doing this? What is difficult about this? Why do you think other people don't do this very well? You know, some quite clever questions that really tease out what's actually going on for these people Uh, and then using those insights to come up with quite a simple intervention uh, because we recognised from all of that research that, you know, it doesn't matter how many more signs you put up and how pretty they are, people just don't see them. Like sign blindness is a problem. Um, And also the fact that nobody gets, like if somebody chucks something in the wrong bin, there's no feedback telling them that. There's no consequences to that. Um, So we came up with a little very simple intervention which was a a little whiteboard that had some feedback on it from the previous week, came from the uh, the building manager, so there was a messenger effect there, which we had found was quite powerful, um, and gave them a little, you know, happy, sad face kind of thing. So it stood out. It was novel. So th- was this in the foyer of the uh, uh, right on the recycling bin where everybody goes down to chuck their stuff? Okay. Into. Yeah. Um, and so like we- a report card. Yeah, pretty much. So it gave them a, hey, last week things went really well. Well done, guys. Happy face from your friendly building manager kind of stuff. So there are a few sort of things going on there. Uh, And then we went back and interviewed people again and we used bin audit data uh, to evaluate the results of, of that. 
One of the interesting things for us with that, though, was um, sort of early days of behavioural insights, um, you know, nudge and the work yeah. that was happening in the UK. It was all about RCTs, so randomised controlled trials and yeah. you've got to get statistical significance and power and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. We worked out early on that that was going to be actually next to impossible for us. <laughs> because um, of resources? Uh, because of availability of, you know, even apartment buildings and our resources and funding and the fact that bin audit data wasn't great and, like, there was a bunch of reasons. But it, it meant that we just took a step back going, all right, well, if we can't do an RCT, what can we do? We can still evaluate this and we can mm-hmm. still do it in a valuable way. Um, and that's also when we really started drawing in some of the um, thinking from human-centred design. So fairly early on, we were thinking more around behavioural insights and human-centred design and how beautiful those two things work together. Mm-hmm. Um, and we kind of did it out of necessity because in the environment portfolio in particular, the data sets just aren't very big. Like you're not playing with the huge data sets that ATO and DHS get to play with. So we just had to think about things a little differently and had to let go of purity. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Um, But, you know, the value is still in understand what's going on for people and evaluate the impact. And there's a bunch of different ways you can do that. Uh, What's interesting in the space is that, you know, we did it out of necessity, but the rest of the field are kind of there now as well because they've realised that, you know, if we're all sitting around waiting for an RCT to come along, you'll be twiddling your thumbs for a while. But also under governments like ours, you know, they they don't want results in two years' time. Mm-hmm. They want them sort of next month. Yes. Uh, so, so that's been interesting in terms of the evolution of the field. So then in terms of that though, how then have you evolved this methodology by using human-centred design and moving away from that? Bigger, the RC, you know, the randomised control trials. Yeah, yeah. So, um, for example, we did a piece of work earlier this year trying to understand why businesses didn't sign up to this particular uh, voluntary co-regulatory approach that uh, my department has. Um, Which particular, this wasn't in waste, this was uh, in It's else. related. It was um, related to the Australian packaging organisation. Oh, yeah? So, okay. Yeah, right. yeah. Um, so all about packaging and product stewardship. Um, and so we took our skills in qualitative research to go out and, you know, talk to businesses and what's going on and blah, 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 blah. But then we also used um, the, you know, more of a human-centred design methodology to synthesise the results of that and then think through what, um, you know, what potential interventions could we prototype and test. So that's a very human-centred design sort of thinking. Um, And kind of iterating along the way Mm -hmm. more so than just here's the intervention, test it, what's the result kind of thing. So much more of an approach of iteration, working with the policy clients and states and and whatever to really think through what are these insights telling us, what can we trial um, and, you know, keep tweaking it along the way. So, so yeah, I mean, that's an ongoing piece of work. I don't have, you know, amazing results to share with you. But 
the other, the benefit of that as well was it meant we could bring our policy clients on the journey with us. Um, we weren't just giving them a report at the end going, well, here's some stats, off you go, do what you like with it. It was more like, okay, well, what do you guys think? This is what it's telling us at the moment. We'll go out and do some more interviews. Now this is what it's telling us. Here's some insights. What can we and, – and, and really working with them to figure out what to do with that. Okay. So is that – so that's an evolving sort of specialisation really yeah, that's, that's starting to come, isn't it? So that's yeah, sort of sure. almost moving behavioural science into the policy development process. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's the holy grail. Yeah. I mean, if you went to some of the like behavioural insights conferences a few years ago that the behavioural insights team out of the UK ran, you know, a lot of the conversations are always about how do we get influence and impact early in the policy cycle rather than that, you know, just in the implementation, how can we make your brochures better? Yeah. Um, It's back in the how do we think about what's actually going on for these people? What incentives are going to work here because incentives are a tricky beast? What, you know, what behavioural science frameworks can we think about at the start so we don't set ourselves up for failure at the end when we're trying to make a brochure do everything? Yeah. But how, why is it so hard then for policy people or is it hard for policy people to say, okay, actually this is very useful, I'm going to... I'm going to try to draw on as many resources as I possibly can to help me to get that understanding that I need so when I am designing the policy that I actually get it right right because I've got better insight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there's probably a few things going on there. So in our experience in my team, there are areas of the department that come to us all the time. They're totally on board. Um, And I'm lucky that my department is very full of scientists. So they're very on board with some kind of scientific approach. Um, So so there's some that we kind of have to bat away. Because we just don't have the resources. And, and, you know, that's another issue that we're a small team servicing a department of 8,000 people. Uh, So there's only so much we can do. Um, uh, But I think as well there is... um, What can you do? That's a really interesting thought, isn't it? Like there are, what did you say, six? Six of us at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, put it together, agriculture water, environment. environment, you know, we're talking... Just a- little... <laughs> it's fine. We'll have it sorted by Christmas, David. It'll be fine. <laughs> but, how then, but how do you um, scale that capability? Is it through education and training yeah, and building yeah. capability? Yeah. In te- so as it becomes, you know, a more central part of yeah. a public servant's job? Yeah, so uh, in part um, the remit of my team is to build capability across the department and so what we have done since we've become the Department of Agriculture, Water and the Environment is um, unearthed a whole bunch of people across the department who already love this stuff and created a community of practice and the, you know, community of practices, it's hard to really make work well. What's awesome about this space is the sort of people that love this stuff are the sort of people that are, you know, really love keen to stuff. get in the room yeah. and chat to other people. So yeah. it kind of um, 
lubricates the wheel there really well. So we've identified a whole bunch of people across the department. We also run, you know, Behavioural Insights 101 type courses. We ran a really nice just online Behavioural Insights for productivity, you know, six minute little videos once a week that people could tap into. Uh, We have fact sheets. We have uh, things like that that people can tap into quite easily. And if I had my way, you know, everybody at the very least would just be asking themselves the question, you know, how can I make things easier for the people I'm trying to influence? Yeah. You know, if they just stop and ask themselves that question, we would come a long way, I think, um, or apply the EAST framework. Like that in itself, it, it doesn't solve all the problems, but it would just help government you know, take a massive leap forward, I mm. think, in terms of doing what we do. I know the UK government uses the East framework in its communication planning yeah. along with its OASIS framework. Yeah. But East stands for? Easy, accessible, social and timely. Okay. And is this... And, and, and in fact, uh, I think Cass Sunstein in recent weeks has added an F to the start. So it's feast and F is for fun. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but how then, But okay, but how do I take feast and, and bring it to a, a typical challenge? So say I'm working in policy in national parks mm-hmm. and I've got a particular issue that I need to uh, influence the number of people who are, I don't know, using the parks in a particular part. How would I think about that with the feast framework? Yeah, yeah. Um, in fact, we were just before COVID lockdown about to head out to Uluru to do a dream project, um, doing something very similar right. uh, because uh, visitor compliance with the rules on park is okay. not always great, right? So if you think about um, the East framework, for example, in thinking through that challenge, it would be about going radio. Um, Firstly, how do we make it easy for people to follow the rules? Like how do we make it easy for them to understand what the rules are? How are we presenting that information? Um, uh, How do we make it super clear like where they're supposed to stop their cars or not stop their cars? Like that Mm -hmm. just has to be super easy because they're just there to look at the beautiful rock, right? Like they're not worried about the lines on the road. Um, How can we give them the information at the right time? So rather than when they're pulling up to the entryway and they've got their first look at the rock, that is not the moment to present them with the information, right? It's probably before you get there or maybe just afterwards. So thinking through that, thinking about, okay, how do we make this social? So who else is in the car with them? How can we use those people? Or how can we use other people on park to set social norms? Um, And what's number, what's A? Accessible. Uh, So again, or no, attractive. So again, how can we give them the the information in a way that they're actually going to engage with? Mm. Yeah, yeah. So probably not on a crappy A4 sheet of paper that just has writing on it, like that they're sort of shoving the side of their car seat. It's probably in a way with, you know, maybe beautiful pictures. Maybe it's a useful like little plastic bag that they can stick rubbish in that they're actually going to use. You know, how how can we make that a useful item that they'll actually engage with? So even just thinking through that framework is really good. The one thing I do say in this space is that, you know, ideally when you've got enough time, you actually do the research because the thing about behavioural science and the frameworks is that 
they're always going to play out differently for different people in different contexts at different times. So you can't assume what worked, you know, five years ago at like Kakadu National Park is going to work in Uluru now. Um, so, you know, all of our advice is caveted around mm-hmm. that. And it's even, it's, it's, that's even getting worse, isn't it, in lots of ways because of changing behaviours, yeah. digital technologies, people thinking, moving, considering faster. Yeah. Cycles moving faster, new cycles moving faster. Yeah, yeah. It's getting harder. Yeah, it is. But that being said, you know, you reflect on the year we've had. Mm. <laughs> and if you told me a year ago, radio, what we need is mass behaviour change yeah. across the world yeah. uh, and we need it to happen within a few weeks. Thanks yeah, very much. Right. Like we would have all just gone, yeah, radio, yeah. go home, think yeah. of something else. But it's happened. It's true. So, you know, this stuff is possible um, and, you know, obviously there's a lot of reflection that has to happen about what's happened this year about all of that and it is a beautiful example of the combination of strategic comms, yeah. engagement. Yeah, yeah. Um, who are you using as your messengers, yeah. what, what other messages you're using yeah. um, and behavioural science underpinning yeah. that. Yeah, there's no question. And it's interesting, you know, Amazon is now like an incredible um, company and when you consider the genius that sort of lay behind it, for mine anyway, is is being that notion of always leaving a chair at meetings mm. for the customer. Yeah, beautiful. And so when we're having conversations, we're drawn, they're, you know, their eyes are drawn to the customer. And so, and when they present things there, they don't present sort of PowerPoint slides, they present stories and the influence on people. So I think that's, I think with all the complexity and the challenge and the difficulty and all the rest of it, I do think that there is an anchor there. Yeah. And it is always the people. Yeah. Isn't it? Absolutely. And if you can hold on to them, Wherever you get dragged and pushed and pulled, as long as you've got that anchor to keep going back yeah. and to know that they're at the centre and the heart of what we've got to try to deliver as public servants, yeah. you know, for the people, I think that helps to shape the conversation and get rid of a lot of the complexity yeah, and yeah. just go back to solving. And, again, it doesn't have to be huge problems. It might be just small problems. Yeah, but, um, yeah exactly. Yeah. And just don't assume, you know. No, you know, God, um, isn't that the death? I hate I hate the term Canberra bubble, but it is something that we really have to consider. Or even if you're Sydney or Melbourne or whatever, you just cannot any assume, bubble. You know yeah. what's going on for other people, um, and think that you know when you're sending them that email to get them to you know click on a link and report or fill out your survey or whatever, <laughs> that is a tiny part <laughs> of a very busy day probably. Yeah. Uh, so you know just. Don't lose sight of that. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Well, that's a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much, Amy, for, for coming in and sharing your wisdom. We've got – I don't even think I asked one of the questions that was prepared. So there you go. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but it's it, – and, again, I think there is this journey that we are now on mm. and I think we do have to sort of find a way to sort of bring this together to, to mature yeah. a capability work together, bring those insights together because, again, you know, almost when you think about research, you know, that, and, and, it, and it does happen where, you know, X is doing it, Y is doing it, you know, so four people might be trying to research the one thing and they don't talk to each other. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that I find in our consulting work going into departments is that they just don't talk enough to each other. Yeah. They're not curious enough yeah. to go and wander and follow their nose about the place to actually find, oh, actually, I've, 
you're doing yeah, yeah. A, the other bit of what I'm trying to do. So how about we try to do that together? So, And that, really understanding the value that each one brings correct. and what makes us distinct, yeah. um, I think would really help us sell the message yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, that's going to be, we're going to do that. We are going to do that. So I'm looking forward to doing that. But thanks for coming in today. That's and great. you can help us. Do, you're going to help do that. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and thanks, audience, for coming back once again. Um, please do stay tuned for the GovComs Institute. And that's where we... We will be replaying all 100 plus hours of the content from the 2020 Government Aftershock Global Dialogue GovComs Festival. Uh, our good friends at the OECD put that on and we were very pleased to participate. 1,570 plus participants and I went through the numbers a bit earlier on. So it was a great success and it was only a success because you participated. So thank you very much for that. Um, thank you to Hugo for organising today's conversation. Thanks to Amy for walking across town uh, to join us here in the studio at Content Group. And to you, the audience, thank you for coming back once again. We'll be back at the same time next week with another fascinating conversation with someone who is equally as interesting as Amy. But for the moment, it's bye for now. You've been listening to the GovComs podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate and subscribe to stay up to date with our latest episodes. 